0: Welcome back to New Books of Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. As a historian, one of my particular research and study interests is the First World War. I regularly teach courses on the conflict, and in fact, I'm now working on a book project related to Pennsylvania prisons and the war. In 2014, I also realized within my own life goals when I toured a number of battlefields cemeteries, and memorials related to the conflict in France and Belgium, ranging from Langemark and Passchendaele, through the Somme and Cambrai, to Reims, Verdun, and Montfaucon. So when I learned that New York Times columnist Richard Rubin was publishing a new book detailing his own trips to the area, I was definitely intrigued. For those who aren't familiar with Richard Rubin, he is the author of The Last of the Doughboys, The Forgotten Generation and Their Forgotten War, they look back on American participation in the Great War through a series of oral histories with some of the war's last survivors. Now, while I'm not a trained historian, Richard brings a passionate outlook to the memory of the First World War, providing what I find to be a unique perspective to our understanding of this century-past conflict. The current book, which we're going to be talking about today, is titled Back Over There One American Time Traveler 100 Years Since the Great War, 500 Miles of Battle Scarred French Countryside, and Too Many Trenches, Shells, Legends, and Ghosts to Count. Richard, thanks for talking to us, and welcome to New Books in Military History.
1: Sure, happy to be here.
0: Richard, why don't you tell us about yourself and what drew you to the project?
1: Well, uh, I've been interested in the First World War for about as long as I can remember, Um, in part, I'm sure, because I'm just naturally drawn to things that are overlooked and underappreciated. And in this country, uh, everything seems to be about the Civil War and World War II. And the First World War, um, perhaps the most important or certainly significant event in Uh, world history uh, is largely forgotten here. So I always wanted to read stories of uh, survivors of that war, uh, particularly American survivors of that war, and a book on that subject never came out. And finally, in 2003, I realized that if one wasn't written very soon, one was never going to be written, because at that point the war had been over for 85 years, and uh, there were only a handful of survivors left. And I determined that nobody else was working on one, and I figured that if I wanted to read such a book, I would have to write it. So that's what I did. Uh, I set out in 2003 to track down an interview Um Every living veteran of World War One, American veteran of that war that I could find. Um, I thought maybe I would find four or five. I ended up finding and interviewing about three dozen men and women. The youngest was 101. The oldest was 113. Wow. Um, and that was published in 2013. Uh, after that, uh, the following year, for the centennial of the start of the war, the New York Times sent me over to France to write a series on American World War I sites over there. Right. And uh, I, that was published in the latter half of 2014. And I just had so much good material uh, that I decided to expand it into the book. So I went back for another month in 2015, uh, revisited sites I had seen the year before, um, found sites I had been unable to find the year before, uh, and new sites that I had just learned about, uh, and then came back and wrote the book, which was published in April of this year, coincident with the centennial of America's entry into World War One.
0: You know, your your book is for me. It's unlike virtually every <laughs> other that we've hosted hosted on new books in military history and that it's very much rooted in the idea of the personal encounter with history. Your focus being on the World First World War, of course, um, but through the lens of a hundred year, years of personal interactions. I'm impelled to ask, how has this experience transformed your own understanding of the war? I mean, are you the same person looking at the conflict now after being so immersed in its locations? <laughs> and artifacts
1: that you were before? Well, I don't think it's possible that I could be. You know, I I spent three years tracking down and interviewing veterans, and then another three years doing research. And in 2009, I was about to sit down and get started writing the book. And I realized that, you know, I had made a point of traveling all over the country, wherever these uh, men and women were, because I wanted to interview them face to face. I knew from years as a journalist that that's really the only way to get the full story is to show up in person. And yet I had never visited these sites that these men and women spoke about uh, at such great length, places where they had seen history made and, in fact, had made history themselves. And so um, I went over there in the summer of 2009 to see some of these places, and it really did transform the way I thought of that war every bit as much as, uh, speaking to actual participants in it transformed my understanding of that war. They're, they're just, you can't really grasp, um, first of all, the scope of that war without going over there. You know, Americans, we think of battlefields as places like, uh, Saratoga and Gettysburg, which are very sort of, Discrete, compact areas. Um, But you go over, for instance, to Verdun, and the battlefield for Verdun is larger than the Paris metropolitan area. It's difficult to to comprehend. I mean, the the battlefield uh, of the Argonne Offensive, uh, the last great battle of World War I, is about half the size of the state of Rhode Island. Uh, These are just not battles that uh, took place on a scale that we recognize uh, in this country. And um, so, you know, that's one thing. Another thing is just sort of seeing what these battle sites look like a hundred years later. Um, It really gives you an appreciation, first of all, of how modern this war was. Uh, You know, all the technology that was brought to bear for the very first time in warfare. I mean, everybody knows that World War I was the first war that saw airplanes and tanks. But I don't think people realize uh, that World War I was also the first war in which electricity played a major role. Uh, you know, at a time when most Americans didn't have electricity in their homes, the Germans electrified Absolutely everything they took and everywhere they went, including deep underground tunnels, uh, trenches, bunkers, dugouts, pillboxes, everything. It was all electrified and also all linked by telephone. Uh, And, you know, 100 years later, the evidence of this is still visible and not because people have made uh, heroic attempts to preserve it. But just because there was so very much of it, absolutely everywhere, that the French, especially in poor regions like Lorraine, which is where uh, most American fighting took place, uh, the French just couldn't do anything to recover the land afterward they didn't have them they didn't have the men they lost more than a million men just in arms in that war and they didn't have the resources the country was devastated and so you really you know that's the second way and the third way is just you know if you read an account of battles of world war one I, I personally never got very much from just reading uh Written accounts right. of that. Histori-
0: historians' written. secondary accounts of it. You mean?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, oh yeah, of course. So certainly, I get a tremendous amount from reading firsthand accounts. But from reading historians' you know secondhand accounts, I, I've never gotten anything, frankly, out of that. But you know, if you read in a book and you uh, you're reading a book, say about the Muzar and you read about a ridge called the Cote de in the Argonne, okay, and you think, okay, well, the 32nd Division, uh, nicknamed Le Terrible, or the Terribles, uh, National Guard from Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, managed to wrest this ridge from the Germans uh, in a two-day fight in October 1918. You think, oh, well, that's good. But then you go there, and you see what it looks like. This is a ridge atop a, a very, very steep hill. Uh, The incline is about 60 degrees. It's very densely wooded. And at the top of this ridge, there are still very deep German trenches, machine gun pits all along the edge of the hill. Uh, On the other side of the ridge, just down the slope a little bit, there are massive gun pits for enormous howitzers. And you think, these guys had to charge up this 60 degree slope in the face of all of that kind of fire reading about it in a book just I don't at least for me it just didn't really give me a sense of the magnitude of that achievement right. uh, going there really really gives you a sense of uh, not only what these these two million Americans in arms in France, uh, accomplished, but also what they endured. Um, you know, the Argonne is, is almost forest primeval. Uh, it's really, really dense and, uh, you know, f- and it's, it's riddled with ridges and, uh, ravines and, uh, you know, the Germans over fortified it, but they really didn't have to. I mean, the natural defenses there are just stunning. And uh, I, don't, I just don't feel like you can get a sense of what that's like by reading about it in a book, even really by talking to people who were there about it. Uh, certainly not very, very old men. Uh, you know, the median age of the people I interviewed was 107. Um, and uh, these were very, very stoic people. And they were disinclined, I think eighty five years on to talk about the horrors that's even,
0: not even ventures that it was possible for them after eighty five years you know, passed whether it's possible for them to to accurately convey or want to convey the experiences that they had
1: um, oh, I I think it was possible for them to accurately convey it. Uh, You know, memory, one thing I learned uh, in the course of doing this book is that uh, memory um, is a matter of first in, last out. And, you know, people who live to be that old, first of all, are different from the rest of us. They're they're immune to things, in, in, in many cases anyway, they're immune to things like um, dementia uh, and things like that. So their memories are very good, and their older memories are even better than their their newer memories. Right. And um, you know, I, I had one of the veterans I interviewed, George Bryant, um, spoke so eloquently about this. The only person I interviewed for this book who wasn't really stoic, and he described marching. Uh, At night, he was in an artillery battery and artillery, of course, uh, was uh, top, you know, a very, uh, (laughs) they were the enemy's top target because artillery killed more people in that war than anything else. And um, he described marching at night and knowing that the Germans were just off the road in the darkness, just past the point where the Americans could see them. But the Germans could see the Americans very clearly and they could open up and kill them anytime they wanted to but they didn't do it because they wanted to see where they were going and he d- he described this mix of terror and uh, excitement that he experienced 86 years earlier in the war this he he called it a thrill so he was you know it was a terror and a thrill um so i think he recalled it very clearly and i think most of them did but the the rest just didn't really want to get into the weeds you know they didn't they didn't want to revisit it uh and so at least in talking to them i never really got much of a sense of what it would have you know what exactly they endured you know except in abstract terms you know yes we were shelled yes we were gassed yes that was bad Uh, Yes, I saw men die, Um, but, you know, not a lot about the topography, not a lot about the defenses that they had to overcome. And to go there and see them, I think, really is to understand what this war was like. And I I can tell you it was unlike any other war uh, in history, including the Second World War.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so much of the war, or so much of war period in our memory is about symbols of commemoration and sacrifice. You know, we think that we know the conflict, but really all we are often confronting is how other people have remembered the war. You know, that, that really, in a nutshell, is why I think your book is important, at least to me it is, because you bring those symbols right into view that, people have created either for themselves or for their communities or for the, the nation or the patrie long after the fact. How did you confront this, though? I mean, as, as you're walking the landscape, you're walking the battlefield, and you confront these other interpretations, sometimes even contradictory interpretations, uh, how did that affect your, your view of the war?
1: Well, I mean, you know, war is organized chaos, and so it's not surprising that people who were there, you know, on the ground would have, you know, possibly even standing right next to each other, would have contradictory impressions of what had happened, and also they could both be right. Uh, So, you know, I don't, um, I'll tell you, I didn't find all that much contradiction in what people Hold me over there. I think a hundred years on, uh, at least among knowledgeable French, right. and you know the well, French are uh, the French are much much more knowledgeable not only about that war but about history in general. Right. Well, we mean, are not they so much
0: not so much the, the the personal interactions, which I want to get to in a moment, but the formal artifacts, the formal memorials.
1: Yeah. Oh well. You know, I, I I cut those a lot of slack. Yeah. You know, I, I, I um, first of all, in a way, the memorials are part of the story because they are, you know, the way that people choose to remember things. Right. I mean, I'm thinking
0: and, like on top of Mort of Holm, you have, you know, that tremendous, you know, uh, relief statue of uh, the Grim Reaper Passing out his his scythe to, to 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 pull in all of the the French dead, mm-hmm. but at the same time there were a lot of German dead and a lot of American dead at that same
1: site. I actually think that uh, the French uh, do a very good job of acknowledging that. You know, it, it uh, first of all look, uh, the the uh, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but to me the most um, awe inspiring memorial in the entire country is uh, the probably the ossuary yes. at Douaumont yes. and that you know is known to have the bones of 130 unidentified soldiers killed at Verdun now they don't say 130 unidentified french soldiers killed at Verdun uh, they just say soldiers because there's really no way of knowing whether they're French or German, unless, you know, maybe a swatch of uniform or something was found with the remains. But if you're digging up remains a hundred years afterwards, you're just not going to find that. So the interior of the ossuary, you'll see lots of names of uh, killed poilus, French soldiers, uh, inscribed on the walls. But the ossuary was built by subscription And, you know, the the Germans certainly didn't subscribe to the building of a a memorial outside Verdun. So that's that's who you're going to see listed in there. But nowhere do they say that these are the remains of one hundred and thirty thousand French soldiers. It's acknowledged that these are both French and Germans. And the fact that uh, the French don't do anything, not that there's really anything they could do, but don't do anything to sort of segregate German remains from French remains, I think says something. You know, the other thing is that you've been there. Uh, there are more German World War One military cemeteries that in sure France is. than there are French World War I military cemeteries in France. And, you know, they're beautifully maintained. Um, the French don't do anything to keep that from happening. Uh, and, you know, I've met French people walking through these German World War I military cemeteries. And, you know, it's, it's not, I'll tell you this, I passed a lot of German World War II uh, military cemeteries in France also, and I will not set foot in one. Right. Uh, and nobody can do anything to make me set foot in a German World War Two military cemetery. So the fact that I've encountered French people in German World War One military cemeteries, I think, is an acknowledgement that this, you know, there was suffering all around, sure. and that you know there was a lot of death all around too. And uh, you know, so uh, by the way, those German cemeteries to me are really, really fascinating, because unlike the French or American cemeteries, where this was not allowed, uh, the Germans uh, allowed people, loved ones, back home to commission private memorials to soldiers who were buried in that cemetery, and you see them there a hundred years later. First of all, that tells you that the Germans thought that this territory was now Germany and would forever remain Germany. And second, uh, that they they had a very romantic vision, I think, of war at that time that the the Allies didn't necessarily have. I mean, just look at those memorials and the imagery on them and the words, you know, and, and they weren't always commissioned by loved ones back home, too. Sometimes, uh, so, you know, uh, someone's fellow soldiers would commission them. You see often, Description is unser lieber Kamerad, uh, you know, our beloved comrade, and um, you know, to me, that says uh, that says something about how they thought of the war at the time. Uh, these are these are contemporary memorials; they're not people rewriting history afterward. They're sort of writing the first draft of it for themselves right
0: there. Well, that's yeah. the big challenge of commemoration, isn't it? A lot of it is so much about work reconciliation and mm-hmm. moving past the immediacy of the conflict to, you know, both for survivors on, on the same side or on both sides or surviving soldiers and surviving, you know, family members mm-hmm. to kind of bridge that gap of hatred and, and to, to create reconciliation
1: yeah and I took it, I think it took a long time. I mean, you know of course the French won the first world war and so it was the Germans t- turn to be consumed with hatred for a generation, just like the French were for 40 years after the Franco-Prussian War. And I think, you know the second world war which the french don't really regard as a separate conflict they really regard the two world wars as one conflict with a 20 year ceasefire yeah. but i i think the second one you know the french germany's stated objective during the battle of verdun was not to take the city of verdun it was yeah. to bleed to bleed france white yeah. and that, that that was their terminology for it and they didn't succeed at Verdun, but they really did succeed by the time the First World War was over. And when the Germans invaded in 1940, the French just didn't have anything to fight back with at that point. They had been bled white. Uh, they didn't have they didn't have the manpower. And honestly, I think they didn't have the will at that point to fight. So I think after this war that effectively lasted uh 31 years and laid an entire continent to waste, uh, killed tens of millions of people. I just don't think there was the will anymore, not only to fight, but to hate. And I think, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that there aren't nationalistic hatreds in Europe to this day. I think there are, but I just, uh, they don't, they don't, um, they don't run the show anymore, because I think that at long last, people learn their lesson. Mm-hmm. And maybe it does
0: help to have these physical reminders present in every village, you know, at every town square, as well as to have the cemeteries. You know, literally in some of these cases, I mean, you know, there'll be a cemetery of, of, for example, in Belgium or France of 100 British soldiers in one place, or The German cemeteries, which are dotting the landscape, that's not a reminder.
1: It is. You know, the British did things differently than everybody else. They They kind of buried buried men where they fell. And so their cemeteries tend to be smaller and much more numerous. Um, The German cemeteries were created initially by the Germans during the war. And some of them are quite large. Uh, But some of them are quite small, even though they contain a lot of people. Uh, For instance, in the village of Bello, um, where the Ain Marne American Cemetery is that contains the graves of um, 2,288 Americans killed at Bello Wood and Soissons and other fighting uh, in the summer of 1918, that's a very large cemetery. And a kilometer away is a very small German cemetery that contains four times as many dead. Because the French the French didn't want to give the Germans any more land than they had to, even to bury their right. dead. And so these cemeteries uh, almost all contain mass graves. But, you know, I don't know, uh, because I haven't done this kind of exploration in Germany, but I can't imagine... That there are that many uh, World War one cemeteries in Germany or even World War one memorials in Germany and you kind of have to wonder if uh, if they had had more of them there uh, perhaps they wouldn't have been so eager to go to war a second time
0: One wonders you know while we're, while we're talking about these issues of death and the, and the reality of death and sacrifice I mean again I think that's another difference. For Americans, in not understanding the war or, or not coming to grips with the First World War in quite the same way we have with the Civil War or the Second World War, um, it's just it's so dense the the sense of loss throughout northern northwestern Europe as you you follow the path of the Western Front. It really is a charnel house. I mean, it's it's no way other way to describe it. And I don't think Americans can really appreciate that without seeing it. You know, did did you have that epiphany yourself? That you know, my word. I mean, if I'd only know.
1: Well, it, it's uh, you know, there's knowing and there's knowing. You know, of course, I knew the numbers, but but they're numbers. seeing they're numbers. You know, they're statistics and seeing. Seeing these markers and reading the names on um, uh, a little memorial statue in a small village, uh, going to a village where uh, there are as many names on the memorial as there are people living in that village today. Uh, you know, it just there's a sense of you get a sense of how much was lost and, you know, how much a million people lost young men was to a country the size of france
0: or a hundred lost men to a small community
1: yeah like i said i've been to villages where there are more names on the village world war one memorial than there are people living in that village today and for for a lot of these places the First World War was the death of the village, even if it wasn't literally. Mm-hmm. And as you know, there, there are no shortage of villages détruits, de destroyed villages in France that were oh, destroyed yes. during the war and just never rebuilt afterward. But there are so many, many more villages uh, in that country that were not physically destroyed, uh, or at least beyond the point of being rebuilt, but were in essence destroyed because the heart of that village, uh, was taken away in that war and, and never returned. Yeah. And it's just, it, 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 never, it never had the life to it after that war that it did before. Yeah. Well, let, let's get a little more current, <laughs> a
0: little, a little brighter point of the conversation, perhaps, you know, you met a lot of people on the way. A lot of Frenchmen, you know, some wonderful <laughs> vignettes of, of local people that you, you you encountered and you befriended and who befriended you. You know, the French get a bad rap, I think, in this country, very much undeservedly so, as being a cynical or an unfriendly pure people. That was not your experience at all. It, it strikes me that you, you've encountered a, a people who, as you said, know their history, want to share in their history, but also very much aware of their bond to America that we just don't, we don't hear about in this country.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I would say that I was treated exceedingly well everywhere I went in France for no other reason than because I'm American, because I really have nothing else to recommend me. So it, but you know, you would, I started for a little while in France before I realized that asking this question was futile. I started every conversation by asking, parlez-vous anglais? Do you speak English? And of course, nobody nobody ever said yes, but frequently the follow-up was, no, vous êtes anglais? Are you English? And as soon as I responded, non, je suis américain, no, I'm American, their demeanor would change. Uh, they would just become uh, friendly. They would smile. They would do whatever they could to help me. Um, and the french just love americans they really do and uh you know despite uh, all of that craziness with freedom fries and people pouring you know french wine down the drain because of the iraq war and all this stuff uh, the french have this profound gratitude to americans that goes back a century and has never never dimmed even a little bit and you know, it's, it's, I was regarded by people and people actually said this to me, uh, you know, we're grateful to you for what you did for us. You know, it's kind of, you know, as if I were a doughboy and had been there a hundred years ago, it kind of reminded me sometimes of that passage in the Passover Seder where you say, you know, because this is what the Lord did for me. He brought me up out of Egypt. And, you know, I, I think that, a lot of people regarded me as an American, uh, you know, in these places that Americans very rarely visit, as a physical embodiment of that army of two million who sailed across an ocean a hundred years ago yeah. to to fight not for treasure or territory, but solely to restore liberty to another peoples the, them. And, you know, I I don't think that this can be said enough. Nothing like that had ever happened in all of human history before. And the French, to their credit, refused to forget it, even though we have forgotten it. They refused to forget it. And so, yeah, absolutely. Everywhere I went, I met people who um, did whatever they could. To help me, you know, to the point where, you know, one time I I knocked on somebody's door, I was trying to find a spot that I had actually visited five years earlier, uh, the the spot where uh, Quentin Roosevelt's plane crashed. Right. And I I knocked on uh, a a door and asked a fellow um, if he could tell me how to get there. And he started to tell me, well, you need to I, I think he said something like drive down this road. And look for the spot where the soil changes color a little bit, and you know, take a then park your car and walk up there. And he could tell just by the look on my face that this was never going to work. So he just grabbed his teenage son and said, "Come on!" And he hiked for you know they were they were on their way out the door to go to some family get together, and he insisted. On, you know, hiking for 15 minutes with me in tow just to show me this spot. And as soon as we got there, he shook my hand, uh, you know, said bonjour, and he and his son walked away because they were in a hurry. They, you know, they had this other thing to do. But just because some stranger had knocked on their... Yeah, some strange American had knocked on their door looking for, you know, the, the, the site where Quentin Roosevelt's plane crashed on July 14th, 1918, um, you know, almost a hundred years earlier, they, you know, they, they interrupted their plans to just walk me there. They didn't know my name. I didn't know their name to this day. I don't know their name, um, But I can't tell you how many times, you know, I encountered things like this and more knocking on somebody's door, asking for directions or something and people inviting me to come in for dinner, um, you know, or or taking me in their cars to find something. You know, I start the book with the story of the um, elderly woman who I accosted outside a tavern. On a Sunday evening, when I was looking for a specific site, and uh, um, a bunch of other people I had already asked on their way out of the tavern had said they didn't know where it was, but she thought about it for a moment. She decided she knew where it was, and she got in a car with a strange man, Mm -hmm. and you know, drove with me for forty-five minutes or so to find it. Um, She didn't know my name. I, I didn't know her name. Just just because. Just because I. You know, I asked, and because I was American. And uh, I had more encounters like that, honestly, than I could ever write about.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you, you described the, the encountering the Yankee Division's mines that they had occupied uh, mm-hmm. during the war. And how it becomes your friend Gilles, you know, escorts you there. But then we discover that he's more than just somebody who knows about this. And essentially, he's... He's curating
1: this. He's preserving this. He is. This was the Yankee division, the 26th division. And he he started going there as a kid with his father. And his father started going there as a young adult in the 50s when an American airman who was stationed at an airbase nearby uh, told him about it and took him there. And Gilles uh, Chauvin is his name. He's very, very... um, he just cares very deeply about uh, not only this place, uh, these, these sub, these are subterranean chalk mines at a place called the Shaman or Ridge where yes. the Yankee division had seen terrible fighting in 1917. And then in early 1918, the Yankee division was stationed there uh, to get some frontline experience. And uh, they left a lot of graffiti on the walls and Gilles uh, cares a great deal about these sites, and he cares a great deal about the names on the walls. He You can see walking around with them, he almost regards them as old friends. Yeah. And he's done research on some of them, and uh, he, he you know, this this is really meaningful to him, and he doesn't make uh, a centime off any of this. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, he, he does this in his spare time, And, uh, he just goes down. Sometimes he takes people down who wants to, who want to see. And sometimes he just goes down on his own. And there are no short trips into these mines. Uh, they're, they're, they're labyrinthine and they're not that easy to get to. And, you know, every time I went, I spent four or five hours in them. And, um, he does it all the time just for the love of the place and the history and frankly, the love of the men who, came to fight on behalf of his country and, you know, left their names on the wall, quite possibly as their last will and testament. I was going
0: to say, in some cases, this is all that's left of these men.
1: It's, Absolutely.
0: call those carvings and, and reliefs that they, they cut out of the chalk.
1: And Absolutely. And, you know, I think that um, I know somebody who, an American, who has a very proprietary feeling about this place. And he's gone down and visited a lot of times. And he, um, he asked me once not to write about them. He feels that doing so would um, you know, expose them to vandalism. And they have been vandalized. People have gone in with chainsaws and cut out some of the beautiful artwork that uh, you know uh, soldiers carved in these places, and it's a terrible thing, a very sad thing to see. I don't know what kind of person would do that. But um, he told me, he asked me not to write about it for the New York Times. But I went down one day and spent about five hours in one of these mines and really felt like I'd gotten to know these long-dead men just a little bit. And I felt that they wanted future generations to see this graffiti. They wanted, they wanted us to know that dead though they may be now, they were once very much alive and they were real people and they were scared. Uh, you know, they went off to war and they didn't let people know it necessarily, certainly not the folks back home. But they were afraid. They knew what they were getting themselves into, and they didn't want to be forgotten. And all they had to ensure, perhaps, that they wouldn't be forgotten, was a little section of chalk war and a wall in an underground mine. And I felt that I felt I had an obligation to these guys to write about this place and to encourage people to go see it. And so I did. And I can tell you that that person has never spoken a word to me since. Uh, so, you know, but I don't have any regrets at all. A lot of people, I wrote about it in the first piece I did for the Times, and then I devoted an entire chapter uh, to it and back over there. And a lot of people have gotten in touch with me and, you know, asked if they could uh, get in touch with Gilles and go, uh, go over there and see them. And Gilles gave me permission to publish his email address in the New York Times and to give it out to anybody who wants it. And um, uh, he's met a lot of people that way, and a lot of people have gotten to see uh, this important site that way. So I feel That's good about good. it.
0: You know, one thing that amazes me that you describe is the extent to which so many Frenchmen and Frenchwomen continue to venerate the United States Marine Corps. Yeah, you know, and again, we never hear of that here, of the extent to which, you know, that the so many French people have have adopted the symbolism and the ideal and the identity of the Marines into their history. And of course, you know, for Americans, we think about Iwo Jima, we think about the South Pacific mm-hmm. or the Central Pacific, but here there's a totally different legacy of, of what the Marines are.
1: Yeah, I met. I met. Um... I met a group of men outside the gates of the Enmarn American Cemetery. That's right by Bella Wood. Um, right after the annual Memorial day ceremony there. Now the Memorial day ceremony, there are Memorial day ceremonies held at every American cemetery. Uh, I believe in Europe, certainly every world war one cemetery. Um, the one at Enmarn is by far the biggest, uh, that I know of, possibly Normandy is bigger, but certainly by far the biggest at the World War One cemeteries, there, there were, uh, somebody told me there were about 7,000, I believe five to 7,000 people in attendance the year I went okay. and the overwhelming majority of them are French right. and outside the gates of the cemetery afterward, I happened to run into a group of French men standing around and they were dressed like bikers wearing like black vests and black t-shirts and stuff and yet instead of Harley Davidson everything they wore uh, made reference to the United States Marine Corps and quite a few of them had arms that were covered with Marine Corps tattoos also yeah. and um, I was introduced to one uh, actually I was introduced to a group of them and one of them was a fellow named Laurent Vannet. Who's uh, I include a photo of him in back over there, um, and as I write in the book, um, I I asked him. He he had both arms covered with USMC tattoos. I asked him if he'd been a Marine, which, as I note in the book, I say I realize now was a stupid question, <laughs> given that I had, that I had to pose it in French. Um, but you know, it, it, it's all about Bellow Wood, um, Bellow Wood. I think unfairly is seen as entirely uh, a, a feat of the United States Marine Corps. When in fact, there, there were two regiments of Marines and two regiments of Army at Bellawood in June of 1918. Um, but it was, a tr- it was the first major victory for Americans in France in the First World War. Uh, but much more important than that... Um, Many French, perhaps most French, certainly most French who live in that area and who I've talked to about it, very much believe that if the Americans did not stop the Germans at Belleau Wood in June of 1918, the Germans would have marched on Paris and won the war. And so they give the Americans, and specifically the Marines, credit for keeping Germany from winning the war. And it's impossible to overstate what that means to them. Sure. And so I, I understand uh, the fascination uh, and obsession that many French have with Marines. And and I can tell you that one of the coolest parts of the whole um, Memorial Day ceremony for me was getting first to see and then to talk to, Um, a bunch of soldiers from the Légion Etrangere, the French Foreign Legion, which a a, a gentleman, an elderly French gentleman who was standing near me um, when I first spotted them and asked who they were, he said, they're Légion Etrangere. he said, and you're very lucky to see them. This is the first time they've ever attended this ceremony. And... um, I I, pro- I regard them as as much an object of fascination as uh, some French people do the Marines. You know, there are just certain certain orders that are surrounded by legend. You know, and some of it's their own is, is their own doing, uh, and some of it is um, other people projecting onto them. But uh, it's uh, it, it's it's really neat to see. It's uh, it's neat to be a part of. And I'm not a Marine, but. Uh, I, you know, I'm. I, it always seeing seeing French people decked out with uh, USMC patches on their shirts and vests and US uh, USMC tattoos on their arms always makes me very proud to be American. So,
0: you know, let's talk about other people. You know, other folks that you've encountered. I mean, you've seen other pilgrims. You know, not necessarily Americans. Probably very few Americans, but you've seen, as you described, Germans. and you've seen. Brits, English, Australians—how mm-hmm. do they react to to the, the locations?
1: Well, I thought you were going to ask me how they react to the fact that I'm American. Well, um, we can
0: add that to it as well.
1: Well, they, well they're always very surprised to encounter an American. Um, how do they react? Um, well, okay, Germans—the Germans I've encountered, I've spotted mostly in cemeteries, looking for an ancestor's grave, and, and I've actually seen graves in German cemeteries. There's a photo of one in The Last of the Doughboys where a homemade memorial was left to an ancestor who I'm sure the person who made the memorial never knew, because um, they died probably a couple generations before this person was born. Uh, they're, you know, they're very subdued. Uh, I think that the subject of the First World War is, a, is really fraught. For Germans, I honestly don't know that, that they're doing anything at all to observe the centennial of it in Germany. So, and I I went to the uh, centennial observance in Kansas City, uh, and um, uh, Germany didn't have a representative there, which I thought was really interesting. Austria did, but Germany didn't. Um, I, I think it's fraught for them for a lot of reasons. I don't think they can separate um, the two world wars. And if you if you um, revisit the First World War, you if you're German, you must necessarily revisit the Second World War. And it's not that the Germans have swept that under the carpet. I think they've done a much better job of um, owning up to their uh, what they did in the Second World War than a lot of other uh, nations did like Austria, uh, and, and other, you know, other nations, uh, with very, very checkered histories in that war. But, um, anyway, so that's, that's where I've encountered Germans is mostly in cemeteries and they, they tend to be very subdued. Uh, they're always delighted to meet you. Um, and uh, a nice thing about Germans, in my experience, is that they're much, much more likely to speak uh, English <laughs> than French people are. So, um, uh, you know, you meet actually some of the most um, avid World War I buffs I encounter over there are Dutch. And it's, it's very interesting to me because the Dutch, of course, were neutral in the First World War. And I always tell them, I, I always say this to them, like, it's amazing to me that you're here. I mean, the Netherlands wasn't even you didn't do anything in the first world war except take the Kaiser in afterward. And they're always very embarrassed about the fact that they took the Kaiser in and very apologetic about it. And, uh, you know, one of them said to me, Oh, we shouldn't have done that. And then he kind of like nodded knowingly and said, it was the money, you know, um, <laughs> and, uh, the Brits and Australians and news. Well, first of all, anywhere you encounter, uh, Australians in the field, uh, you're going to have a good time. Sure. I mean, they're just like, They're just like the, the, you know, the, the hellest fellows well met in the world. Uh, they're, you know, they just have a good time everywhere they go and, um, they're raucous. They're not irreverent. They certainly give history its due and they're respectful, but goodness, they're having a really good time. Um, and I think the same, although I didn't meet very many, the same is true for New Zealanders. The Brits, um, you know, in certain in certain areas of France, particularly the Somme, uh, you know, for much of the year, you're more likely to hear English spoken than French, because uh, yeah. it seems that British tourists outnumber the locals. And school um, groups.
0: Oh, when we were at, at Thiefel Gate, it was a pouring rain or the, the Thiefel Monument pouring rain yeah and there were busloads of british school kids and they were just like any any teenager at any site in the united states they were there it was a school trip let's move on and it was just Mm -hmm. it was in a way sad but also yeah kind of expected
1: yeah yeah you know i i um i i saw school sort of interact with them, but I did end up interacting with a lot of sort of British tour groups. I mean, you can't really avoid them. If you're out walking around somewhere uh, and, um, uh, you know, anywhere that anything happened during the Somme, you're never very far from a British tour group. And oftentimes I would kind of sort of latch on to them just to uh, uh, take advantage of the uh, tour guide's expertise, because I, I know much less about that part of the war than I do about the American parts of the sure. war. Sure. And, uh, you know, sometimes I would get kind of the stink eye. And uh, some, <laughs> some sometimes, as I describe in the book, uh, I would be kind of taken in like a stray kitten, you know. Uh, for a mother cat who's nursing uh, her own litter you know and has a spare a spare uh, uh, teeth, you know I would be sort of welcomed in and this and that but they're um they're quite obsessive and um they you know the British I tell people often the British think that uh, they fought both sides of World War one and both won and, and lost the war yep. and uh, uh you know they they, they think that. They were the First World War, and um, you meet them in the field, and that's all they know about the First World War, by and large, is what Britain did and where Britain was. I remember once I was um, having dinner at this uh, outdoor cafe in in a pretty town called San Menuhul which is in the, in the Argonne. And I heard a couple walking by, a British couple walking by speaking English. And, you know, you almost never hear English in that part of France. So, you know, I introduced myself and, and uh, um, they uh, asked me what I was doing there. They said they were on their way to Germany and uh, asked me what I was doing there. And I said, I was visiting the Western Front. And they said, oh, we just came from there. And I said, where? And they said, oh, you know, the Somme. And they thought the Somme was the Western Front. And this is a very typical British. attitude, I think, among British, uh, you know, uh, among the British. And um, uh, so, but they're, you know, they're not as blithe necessarily as the Australians, uh, but they are quite obsessive. And I I've met people who came back you know, to the same place and stayed in the same inn every year, visited the same sites every year, met up with the same people also from Britain every year back home in Britain. They live a few yeah. miles apart. They never see each other at home. They only see each other once a year at the That's soul. Amazing. Uh, yeah. so, you know, it, it uh, uh, to say that they take this stuff seriously is a grave understatement. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I I was going to say when I was in around the um, we stayed in Amiens when I was there, and then around Amiens, and then you go into the Somme battle sites Mm -hmm. and the cemeteries there. You see a lot more evidence of British family members coming back and making a heartfelt pilgrimage, Mm -hmm. where they'll leave photos of the deceased's uh, grandchildren or you know extended family. Uh, or they'll leave the scrapbooks that they've collected about their mm-hmm. their forbear. That you just, you don't see obviously at montfaucon sur roman or the Aime Cemetery because very few Americans do go over. No, um,
1: but you do. But you do see that in German cemeteries. Yeah, um, I I have seen it in German cemeteries, not perhaps as much. As, as at the British cemeteries, but you do. Oh, you see, you see it at German cemeteries, perhaps not to the extent of British cemeteries, and you do see it sometimes at French cemeteries also. Um, and you also see it uh, in France on um, village and town memorials. Yeah. Sometimes people, people will attach a little plaque with a photo, ah, mon... Papa Regreté, or something like that, My Dear Departed Father, and there'll be a photo of them. You also see it, actually, one of the most moving things uh, I visited is, uh, we talked a little bit about the Douaumont Ossuary. Uh, There are quite a few ossuaries in France, France, I don't know if it's very French or not. You don't see that many of them in the United States. And frankly, I'm glad because I think I find ossuaries kind of eerie um, repositories of of bones. But there's one in a section of the Argonne called Ochevoche. So it was built by subscription also. And inside in the crypt... Uh, the, crypt, the walls of the crypt are just covered with plaques uh, that people who built this ossuary by subscription affixed to the walls, um, almost all of which feature photographs of the departed, either in u- uh, uniform or in civilian clothes. And, you know, it seems a strange thing to say, but that really, really does a great deal, I think, to humanize these people just seeing a photo of them because you look at them and invariably you'll find somebody who looks like a little bit like somebody, you know,
0: yeah,
1: or somebody you knew or somebody you could have known. You know, when when we go to a, a portrait gallery full of paintings from the 18th century, we we, we at least I look at them. And I often think um God, people don't look like that anymore. But the people in these old photographs, they do look like us. Maybe they have facial hair that we, won't, we wouldn't wear. But they look like us. Uh, and uh, seeing them, again, reminds you, these were people who were once alive. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, uh, and that they're not just a statistic. This was a guy who had a family who had a wife and children, who had a mother and father who loved him, who raised him and nurtured him. And then he went off to fight this war that didn't really solve anything. It created the world that we live in today, but it didn't, it didn't make the world safe for democracy. But they went off because they felt it was their duty. And one day in this forest perhaps near where they lived, perhaps far away from where they live, they simply disappeared or they were shot through the heart or something. And they never came home. And all that the people back at home had left of them was this photograph that they affixed to this little plaque and stuck on this wall. You know, the, the other thing about that ossuary that really hit me hard, and I don't know why it should have, I should have known better, I guess, but gosh, there were a lot of plaques in there for men who were killed right around Christmas and New Year's, oh. you know? And, um, you know, uh, it's it just like, it's never a good time to die, but you just think, oof, that's just uh, rubbing salt into the wound, you know? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to people who make the effort to personalize memorials like this because I think they do all of us a great service. You know, they're doing it for their own reasons, but, but they're, but, but we benefit too. And, uh, I, I for one really, really appreciate it. I, I, um, I think that as much as standing on Côté d'Amari and looking down that slope, um, seeing these little memorials that people left, um, really, um, showed me a side of the war that I just didn't understand before. Right.
0: Right. You, you know, you're, you're, the crux of the book is about battlefield walking and, you know, walking the terrain, walking the, the graveyards, the memorials. That's a far different prospect along the Western Front than it might be along the high water mark at Gettysburg. You know, there's, there's hazards as much as there are memories along the Western Front, even today.
1: Well, yeah, there are hazards. There are also, you know, the Western Front is not, for the most part, littered with memorials everywhere you look. So I I find it impossible at Gettysburg to lose myself in history because everywhere I look, there's a statue, there's a a plaque, there's a boulder. Uh, On the Western Front, Uh, Most of this stuff has been left as it was. Uh, Hazard, you know, it's a funny thing because I I give a lot of talks all over the country um, and I love doing it um, because I I love connecting with people about this and talking to them. Uh, There's a real hunger, I think, in this country for stories and knowledge about America and the First World War that has just not been fed and I'm very happy to go wherever I can uh to help remedy that. But um I, I'm given a lot of talks about back over there since it was published and very frequently I get the question, you know, you walk through these woods and stuff, you know, weren't you worried about tripping over a live shell? And actually I literally have tripped over live shell. Can
0: you described that. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> before. But I just um you know, I guess I had, I don't possess uh, uh, the ordinary person's sense of self-preservation because I never gave it all that much thought. Um, You
0: you strike me, Richard, as someone who's very lost in in, in your passion. And, of course, it wouldn't feature much in it because you're there. You're you're living it and experiencing it. And, you know, that's a little bit of, you know, danger maybe, but that makes it even more exciting, I would think, for you. (laughs)
1: Uh, you know, I guess, uh, I just, I, I really, it, it never, you know, I, it, I, I, did have one thing I, um, which saved my neck more times than I can count, which is a, I had a telescoping walking stick that I bought from L.L. Bean. It was the best $80 I've ever spent, <laughs> because I mean, it saved me from dangerous falls many, many times. Um, but it also, was a very low-tech mind detector. You know, you kind of... If you see something that looks like it might be a little suspicious, you can at least put six or eight feet in between you and it and <laughs> poke it a little bit, and maybe you won't die. Maybe you'll only be maimed or something like that. I mean, I think you're much, I think you're at much greater danger of getting tetanus uh, than you are of blowing up. Although, of course, there are shells absolutely everywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, one of my... Th- one of my favorite statistics uh, in in all of history, and one that's that it sounds like an urban legend, but it's absolutely true. I've researched this. More shells were fired during the First World War that did not explode than were fired in all of World War II. Period. Yep. The total number of shells that were fired in World War II. And, I mean, they literally are plowed up every day. And you do see there are stories all the time in France about... Farmers or kids or somebody being gravely wounded, even killed by unexploded yes. World War One ordinance. But you know, you, you, I at least have found that I just have to take kind of a fatalistic, you know, view. Lawrence Moffat, one of the veterans I interviewed uh, for the Last of the Doughboys, you know, said uh, that he wasn't really worried about getting killed because, first of all, he thought if he was killed, that was everybody else's problem. He wouldn't know it uh and second of all he said very shortly you know after being introduced to combat he, he developed this attitude of well if i get it i get it I do, if i don't i don't uh and there's nothing i can do about it and i guess that's kind of the way that i'm now of course i was never in the kind of danger that he was in oh, no. but but you know there's stuff out there that can hurt you and um you know i i be smart look at the ground but but uh I never let it keep me from going anywhere. The only thing I ever let keep me from going someplace I wanted to go was once I was going to go into a tunnel. Every time I found the entrance to a tunnel that wasn't sealed off, I went into it. But one one time, <laughs> you're, you're one, right to my own heart, Richard. I'll tell you. That. It's there. Wait, who wouldn't? Uh, but uh, I mean, unless you're claustrophobic or something. But one time, I was about to do this, and Dave Bedford, the superintendent of the Muzargon American Cemetery, said I wouldn't do that. Um, I believe there's a family of badgers down in there and they wouldn't take too kindly to an unannounced visitor. So that was the only, the only time I, I ever, you know, decided not to, not to go explore something I wanted to explore.
0: Yeah. I, I, I strayed perhaps a bit too far from the path in the area around Fort Vaux when we were in Verdun and I got a scolding for that from my partner. But we'll we'll leave that for another day.
1: <laughs> it, 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 well, see that's why I that's why I did all this traveling alone, or either alone or in the company of French people who knew much more about the area than I did. When I was with them, I never gave it a second thought. You know, I just yeah. you know, I thought perhaps incorrectly, but I thought, eh, he knows what he's doing. Uh, so, okay. Well, you know, you
0: know, I find it interesting. You know, I reflect on on um, what you've written, and I, I reflect upon my own visit there three years ago. And I, I think about the context of recent events in Europe and elsewhere. And, you know, so many of those areas that you visited, you know, that were once so vital and essential, to French identity, the France's economy, and, and, and such a form, really hard times. How is this have you seen any evidence that this change in fortunes and circumstances affects how the people who live there now look back at the war? Does it prompt greater nostalgia or reflection, or is there a connection? Is there a connection at all?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I think that there's uh, there's certainly nostalgia in France for the time before the war. And honestly, in some people, I think for the war itself. Um, but, you know, as I write in the book, I think the war, the First World War, represents what I call the red giant of French greatness. Yeah. You know, it was that last sort of, it was that the last time that France was really a dominant world power, an important, a very important player, uh, one of the most important on the world stage. And I think there's a certain nostalgia for that. Um, You know, I I think that um, uh, as far as sort of, you know, these places being more uh, vital than they used to be, I, I I don't think that what's going on in France is really any different than what's going on here. I mean, I lived in the deep, I lived in the Deep South for several years after college, right. and I've spent a I spent a lot of time in the Great Plains, particularly in North Dakota, and you see the exact same thing there. You know, towns that once had opera houses and um, car dealerships and things like that down to their last dozen people right. or so. It's just this, I think, a global shift from rural to urban, right. and. Um, I I, I I never got the sense, frankly, uh, from anybody I spoke to in a small town in France that they wished <laughs> that more people still lived in their village. I think that they're, you know, they're they're pretty happy uh, being where they are. They don't ha- they don't have to stay there. Uh, but there can be no doubt. All you have to do is look at old French postcards and there can be no doubt that. Small town France, rural France, uh, agricultural France, was just much more vital once yeah. upon a time than it is now. I mean, even the smallest towns had cafes and hotels yeah. and things like that. Um, did the war play a big role in changing that? Yes, I think it did.
0: Okay, uh, did it
1: not, I mean, yeah, I the
0: devastation uh, in, the, in the region, yeah.
1: Well, well, not just the devastation in the region, but also the reshaping of economic models, you know uh, and uh, so you know it played it played a role indirectly and it played a role directly and 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 more than one in both ways so but uh, you know, I think that um I think there's a lot of nostalgia in France for the time before the First World War. Uh, you know, and, uh, some of it is a little insidious and a lot of it is, uh, uh I think comes from, from a good place. And, um, uh, but what can you do? I, I, think they recognize as well as anybody that, you know, the past is the past and you, you can never go back. Um, so, you know, they, they, uh, they live in these places, they cherish the history, and, and they live in, in the now also. Mm-hmm.
0: Two quick questions as, as we're bringing it almost to the end. Um, first of all, if you're going to identify or list a favorite site, what would it be and why? And, and secondly, any quick advice for any of our listeners or your readers who might consider
1: following your trail? um well okay let me uh let me think for a minute you can put it on pause i'm just going to think sure. for a minute about okay. a favorite site because okay. geez to pick one i know,
0: I know. um
1: yeah well I'll, I'll take a stab at it but it's not going to be just one so um you know there, are they're, they're there are different sites that, that are really important to me for different reasons. Um, the village of Mezy uh, in Champagne, which is where the 3rd Division, the American 3rd Division, stopped the last German offensive of the war uh-huh. uh, shortly after midnight on June 15, 1918, is really... Um, is really powerful to me not because of what's still there because in fact there's very little that remains of the war still there champagne unlike lorraine um champagne real estate is very valuable of course that's where they grow the grapes uh that make champagne and so a lot of those fields to be honest yeah so that that was all reclaimed after the war it was too valuable to be left plus Uh, Unlike Lorraine, it wasn't fought over for four years. The fighting there was really a matter of weeks. Um, So there's really not a lot to see except the topography. And what you see is this bowl, uh, essentially, this perfect killing field, as I describe it, uh, in back over there. And you really understand, I think, um, just what the third division was somehow able to do. There. And you look across and you see the hills on the other side of the Marne River, these hills that the Germans came storming down yeah. shortly after midnight on July 15th. And it must have looked to those Americans, you know, in the flash of flares, it must have looked to them like the the, the, the hills themselves were coming after them. Yeah. Uh, it must have been terrifying. Um, so that's one Um Almost any place in the Argonne, uh, it, to me, is just, uh, is just wondrous to see, particularly um, uh, the, the parts in the forest uh, are, are really significant to me. Uh, the, the site where the last man killed in the war, an American, mm. um, I think is a very, very special spot um, that's not all that easy to find but well worth uh, the effort um, to just can you think of another war in history that we know who the last person killed in that war was i mean can you think of another war in history that we know the precise instant that war ended probably my favorite area for relics and and artifacts is is the Wavre, uh that plain in lorraine where um uh, the um, the Battle of San Miguel was fought uh-huh. uh, in September of 1918, and also where two American divisions, the first and then the 26th, got some very early experience in the winter and early spring of 1918 fighting. Yeah. Uh, just because um, there are innumerable farmer's fields with uh, German bunkers and pillboxes, sitting okay. in the middle of them. And I mean, anytime you're driving out there and you see a field that has a clump of brush in the middle of it, just you know that why is. that you know why that's there. Uh, there's no other reason. And again, it's not like the farmers preserve this as a memorial. They just can't do anything with it.
0: Well I uh, remember I, would... I remember driving back from uh, Montfaucon and, and the Muskan back to Rems where we were staying and so many fields mm-hmm. with the bunkers that were still there—they're very, very visible. They clearly were being used now as sheds by the farmers. So the
1: use for them, really. yeah. Oh, yeah. The the, the French, uh, you know, uh, recycled everything they could from that war. They tore up every. Every yard of narrow gauge rail track the Germans laid to rebuild their fence posts. Uh, They took they took whatever they could off German bunkers to rebuild their own homes. Uh, But there just was you know there was just too much of it and too much of it that couldn't be destroyed. Uh, I think the big discovery of my last trip to France in 2015 was um, an, an eastern area. Uh, during the war, it would have sat right on the border with Germany oh, uh, right. called the, the Sommerville sector. It's in the easternmost Lorraine and Alsace. And it was there that uh, the first American shot of the war was fired in the fall of 1917. And it was there that the first three American doughboys were killed um, about 10 days later. And, um, uh, you know, you've got beautiful, fascinating terrain, the Vosges Mountains, uh, and um, it's not what you think of when you think of World War One. You know, you think of sort of flat, mud-soaked uh, trenches and things like that. This is hilly. Uh, it's beautiful. And also, it was a very significant battleground in the first battle of world war 1 which right. was known as the, the battle of the frontiers which today is almost entirely forgotten but um was tremendously significant and terribly terribly deadly the, yeah. the bloodiest the bloodiest day in french military history took place there in august of 1914 a single day 27,000 french soldiers were killed um and that's an area that not only do very few Americans visit, but very few Americans even know exists. And I, I would recommend anybody go there. So what I would recommend to people, first of all, um, very frequently <laughs> uh, during the Q&A sessions after I speak, somebody will ask me if there are American tour companies that lead tours of these areas. And I say, no, I'm afraid not. And then somebody else will say, well, why don't you do it? And... <laughs> Um, I I used to answer that I was temperamentally unsuited to doing this kind of work, but people were so persistent that I reached out to a friend of mine who's a professional tour guide uh, and a PhD in modern European history, and we may be putting together a tour for next spring. Uh, If anybody wants uh, more information on that, my email address is RichardRubinWriter. Uh, and that's Ruben is R-U-B-I-N. So Richard Rubin Writer, all one word at gmail.com. Or you can go to my website, Richard or find me on Facebook and let me know if you'd be interested in that. Um, but I would say that you need to be prepared for a different kind of tourism experience. This is um, uh, this is in a way it's do it yourself history. You know that you're you're not. Going to be able to see anything meaningful really from the comfortable seat of an air conditioned tour bus. Uh, You're going to have to bushwhack. You're going to have to walk through woods. Uh, You're going to have to walk out into fields. Now, in France, there's something known as droit du passage, uh, the right of passage, which means basically there is no trespassing. You can cut through anybody's property. But you know, be considerate. Don't trample a farmer's crops. Um, you know, but you can walk out there and chances are, if the farmer spots you doing it, he'll come out, he'll ask you what you're doing, and he probably knows much more about the local history than you do, and will be happy to share it with you. Um, it helps a lot to know even a little bit of French. I mean, my French is pretty bad. I tell people I speak French like a toddler, but, um, (laughs) But the French, you know, people think the French are, are, you know, will make fun of you if your French isn't perfect. That is so untrue. Um, the French only care that you're trying. If you go 5% of the way, they'll go 95% of the way. Um, they'll do anything for you. Just try to make yourself understood in French. Don't assume that they're going to speak English. Um Don't expect to find big American-style hotels uh, in these places. Uh, Whenever I travel, I stay in bed and breakfast. Uh, For one thing, they're cheaper than hotels. You get a good breakfast. and The rooms are bigger than they are in European hotels. And also, um, you meet really interesting and knowledgeable people. And I found I connected with a lot of people in places that I wouldn't have otherwise because of folks I met. Uh, at bed and breakfast. Um There are hotels. You can certainly stay at those if you want to, but uh, the rooms are going to be small. They're not usually air conditioned um, and it can get quite hot in France in oh, June, yes. July, August. Uh, and um, that's the first thing I always did when I got to France for a month was I went to A. Claire and I bought a fan. And I just took it with me everywhere. And then when I left, I, I abandoned the fan. I left it at the last place I stayed because I'm not going to schlep home a, a fan that has a European plug on it. Uh, but it was well, it was well worth the 20 euros or whatever that I spent sure. on it. Um, and you know, just be open. I mean, the people over there will, will do anything for you if you're respectful and, um, and you're friendly and you try to speak a little French with them. Uh, they absolutely, they'll be delighted to meet you. They like Americans. They don't see very, uh, very many Americans. And, you know, they'll talk to you about game of Thrones until they're blue in the face. (laughs) And, um, you know, they love American culture. They love American products. Uh, you know, don't, uh, don't be defensive. Um, you know, don't go over determined to, uh, be, you know, the ugly American and thrust your Americanness in their face, but don't hide your Americanness either. They're fascinated by it and uh, they appreciate it. And, um, you know, do a lot, do as much research as you possibly can um, before you go over there and connect with as many local experts as you possibly can. That's, that's something I discovered um, is that, people over there have fiefdoms you know world war 1 buffs have fiefdoms mm-hmm. and you you don't even if you could you wouldn't want to hook up with somebody who you know, offered to show you the entire Western front because their knowledge might be broad, but it's not very deep. And you want to be with somebody whose knowledge is really deep because those are people who know the really interesting stories, the human stories about what happened here or there. And those are the people you want to get to know. Um, I didn't go to too many museums. Um, there's a very fine one, in um, the city of Mo, M E A U X, which uh-huh. is about twenty twenty five miles outside Paris. Right. Um, well, that honest. There's
0: also the Historial in Peronne, which is actually a relatively he, new museum. I think.
1: No, Mo is actually newer, and oh, okay. Mo Mo is um, Mo is essentially one man's enormous collection. But what a collection! Yeah. Definitely worth seeing. Uh, But honestly, I think one museum is plenty uh, for any – certainly one museum that just deals with the war in general. I mean, they they have or had a nice museum at Duomo, but it's been closed for a while for renovations and stuff. I don't know if it's reopened at this point or not. But, um, you know, definitely go to the ossuary. Uh, You know what? If you're planning a trip over there or you're just intrigued about it, just – Pick up a copy of back over there. Write, (laughs) write, email me, uh, you know, tell me I'm interested in seeing this and this. What do you recommend? And I'll be happy to to point you in the right direction. you're you're setting yourself
0: up for a flood of email, Richard. (laughs) I'll warn you.
1: Well, that's fine. It may take me a long time to respond, but, uh, you know, I'd be happy to, you know, because I want people to go see these places. I mean, this is our heritage. This is this is the war that made the united states of america the world power it is today the start of the
0: american century
1: yes and um you know it's 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 kind of a shame that we've forgotten it but um it doesn't have to be that way and there are lots and lots of people over there who are only too happy to teach you what You've forgotten about American history and, and, you know, to do it in the nicest possible way. So, you know, go. go. I can't recommend it enough.
0: <laughs> Two last questions. We ask all of our interview subjects. Uh, first, is there anything you're reading lately that you would want to recommend to our, our listeners?
1: Um. Well, I'm always reading um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I live in Maine, and Maine is the land of the public library book sale. And so, I, you know, I, re- I read a lot of stuff that's very long out of print. Lately, I've become fascinated with Lewis and Clark. And um, I'd read Stephen Ambrose's book on it a long time ago. But I picked up a three-volume um reprint of uh the journals of lewis and clark the annotated journals of lewis which is just absolutely fascinating i i just i cannot put it down um i'm also reading a book right now by william manchester called a world lit only by fire Uh which is about uh medieval europe Right. which is really really fascinating. Um uh, there was a, it may surprise people to learn that I'm not reading something about World War 1. I. I often am uh reading something about World War 1, but uh um you know, I'm 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 fascinated in in many different eras of sometimes, history, both American and world.
0: Sometimes you just need a break.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I would recommend to anybody who's interested in reading about World War One to look up old books that are out of print uh, that were written during the war um, by either um, uh, men who were fighting the war or by uh, newspaper correspondence it was the golden age of american print journalism and uh some some newspaper journalists were superstars and boy could they write and um there's a book by the journalist floyd gibbons and they thought we wouldn't fight which deals with uh bellow wood um Uh can't recommend it highly enough um the bibliography is both the last of the doughboys and um uh, um, back over there are filled uh, with with books that I cannot recommend highly enough. Uh, but uh, right now I'm reading about Lewis and Clark in medieval Europe. Okay.
0: okay. And then our final question, what's next? This isn't well, your last project, clearly.
1: No, it's definitely not my last project, but it is at least for a good while my last project on World War One or war in general. Uh, I'm trying to decide between two different book projects right now. Both have historical components, but neither is purely history, and neither has anything to do with war. Uh, and both are American. So, um, but I also do a lot of um, travel writing uh, for the New York Times, and that keeps me pretty busy. So, you can look for my stuff there. I write for magazines, so I like to I like to mix it up between short pieces and longer pieces. Uh, and um, so, but I'm planning to start on a new book project probably in the fall. Great, great,
0: Richard. I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to us. This was, was a fascinating conversation.
1: It's been it's been my pleasure. And again, I, I you know people are welcome to email me at richardrubenwriter at gmail.com. Uh, I love hearing from people, um, and uh, even if it's just a right to tell me something I got wrong, uh, it may take, may take me a little longer to respond to one of those emails. I have to word that one just right. Uh, but uh, um, uh, And uh, if anybody would be interested in having me come speak in their community, uh, I'm always happy to do that. Uh, just let me know.
0: That's great. You'll, you'll certainly get some inquiries and for new books in military history this is your host Bob Wintermute thank you all for listening <laughs>